it's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the beginning. I still can't believe we saw a Ventuvi. And it wasn't an enslaved dreadnought. A, a what now? Do they teach you history where you're from? The history of Lord Frieza's glorious rise to power and conquest of much of the galaxy, yeah. But not the history of the Ventuvi Dreadnoughts, apparently. Well, no, not that history. I mean, uh, I, uh, I already know it, because uh, I, I know everything, unlike you, Recruit. But uh, wh- why don't you tell our listeners out there so they can become as knowledgeable as we are? Yeah, uh, okay, sure. So the reason Ventuvi are thought to be essentially extinct is that thousands of years ago, the carbivores figured out how to mind with them, and they switched into heavily armored, weaponized transports. Essentially living battle cruisers. Carbivore? Those weaklings? On my planet, our children beat Carbivore in routine sparring matches to learn their first fighting moves. They're basically non-genetically enhanced Cybermen. You're not really wrong there, but they did figure out some sort of mind control technique enough to be able to enslave an entire race and then use that the power of the Ventuvi to conquer several planets, which is why they're so widespread throughout the galaxy. Huh. I thought they just spread like seeds on solar winds. To an extent, yes, but the solar winds don't blow enough to explain how carbivores are so widespread across many systems. Well, as I always tell jam and marmalade... Ugh. Ahem. I always tell them to learn something new every day. And here I am learning that carbivore used to be galactic conquerors. Yeah, and? And what? Bikini? Nothing. At least I don't think so. That Ventuvi must just float around in this area of space a lot. Every now and then my scouter wants to try and pick up on it again. Yeah, mine too, but I don't worry about it. It seemed nice enough. For once I agree with you about not worrying, but not for the same reason. The typical Dreadnought was not a beautiful, graceful creature whose very appearance made you believe in a plane of existence greater than yours. It was a mechanical nightmare, a complete bastardization of what we just witnessed. Enough that looking at it was known to inspire people to commit suicide on the spot. Well, obviously that, too. (laughs) And besides which, Frieza Planet number... Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. Oh. Uh, Guess our locations have to remain a secret for a while longer still. Anyway, our destination is nearing. In fact, we could probably tackle our discussion topic for the day as we make our final approach. And today... We're getting back to the anime, and we're going to tackle episodes 29 through 33, which is five episodes, yes, but it's all filler. Um, Like, there's maybe three minutes of material that was was in the manga that's, that's in these 
five episodes, which amount to like 95 minutes or so of material because some of these episodes have previously on Dragon Ball and some don't. Um, so yeah, there's about like 95 minutes worth of material here and like three minutes of it was in the manga. But <laughs> these five episodes are The Roaming Lake, Pilaf and the Mystery Force, Wedding Plans, Fly- The Flying Fortress Vanished, and Legend of the Dragon. Roaming Lake is about Goku coming across Nam again and Nam's like, they're, they don't have enough water even despite him bringing that back to sustain them their their well is dry they they need a more normal source of water so goku accidentally stumbles across him and they trace back the river that has dried up they find it is dammed up by girin's people and then they blow it up and everyone is happy basically there's also a roaming lake as the namesake of the episode would indicate. Uh, Pilaf and the Mystery Force is, you know, again, we're questing after the Dragon Balls. Pilaf is questing after one as well. They think they have found one in this little, like, pawn shop. The shopkeeper sells it to Pilaf, but then he also sells it to Goku, and we find out that this guy... or. He sells it, tries to sell it to the Red Ribbon Army, rather. We found out this guy has, like, a chest full of fake Dragon Balls. The reason everyone thinks there's a Dragon Ball at this pawn shop is because there's one, like, up on the roof, and a bird has it in its nest. Wedding Plans features Goku coming, stumbling back across Chi-Chi, kind of. Like, Pilaf and his gang stumble across Chi-Chi, basically, and they're like, oh, Chi-Chi's like, oh, let's get married and everything. And so Goku, Shu wears a Goku disguise, goes to Chi-Chi's house where they feast and, like, they're trying to find another Dragon Ball, basically. Then the Flying Fortress vanished is Pilaf has this Flying Fortress, which has been chased away by the Red Ribbon Army, and now no one can seem to find it, and you get a lot of rehashing of, like, Pilaf's mechanicalisms and and his uh, traps and things. And then the legend of the dragon is our final episode here. And it concerns, I don't even remember what the action of this episode itself really was. This is a very inconsequential episode. Um, Do you remember what happens I, the, in this the one? first portion of this episode, if I remember right, was dedicated to getting like some background on one of the red ribbon commanders, uh, silver. Yeah. Um, like there's there's like a, a a scene where he's like in the gym working out with a bunch of other guys and like they're doing a sparring match in a boxing ring and like he kicks like five guys asses really quick. Right. And then the second half is we find another Dragon Ball. It's among like a group of monkeys that Goku has befriended. And then we cut to Krillin and Roshi and Krillin's like, what are these Dragon Balls that Goku's going after? And Roshi tells him a story of the Dragon Balls, and we'll talk more about that. You know, what we usually like to do is we usually like to go through episodes that obviously have the manga counterparts, and we talk about what inspired Toriyama to create these various moments. And if they have little bits of filler in the episode, we talk about like, oh, that little bit of filler is actually playing off of this idea. You know, we did that when we talked about Pilaf, I'm not sure if it was when we talked about Pilaf himself or when we talked about the the very end of the arc with the pinball stuff, but we talked about how that was like inspired by Pilaf's actual design because he looks like a character from the movie Pinball Wizard. So that's that's like we like to do that. These are all filler. So it's hard to come up with like what Toriyama was thinking because Toriyama wasn't thinking it. <laughs> What we tried to do or what, you know, what we tried to do is go through and look at like, can we find any homages to homages to like pop culture in general? Could we find any just sort of interesting things to talk about that these are playing off of? And we found some stuff. So it's, you know, worth talking about. So like when we talk about the Roaming Lake episode, we couldn't find any like literary or cultural homages. and, And that was like a very... I'll say it's a surprising thing. Like, I thought 
if I went and looked up Roaming Lake story or Roaming Lake mythology or Roaming Lake Japan or some, something, I would find, oh, this is a like a well-known folk story, like the like the I, mochi making rabbit in the moon. Yeah, I, the premise itself really does sound like something that would be in a fairy tale. Yeah, I came up with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with a lot of things about like, I, I think there's a lake called Roaming Lake in like Michigan or Minnesota. Like, <laughs> I came wow. up with nothing. Well, uh, uh, clearly the 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 play here is to come up with a story about a roaming lake. Yeah, as that's that's not a a story that's being told apparently. So it's possible that this whole idea is just inspired by the very existence of mirages in the desert. I even tried to look into that and be like, Oh, mirages were mirages. Like, did they inspire an idea that like lakes were like roaming around, like just beyond your reach? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So you're coming at this from all kinds of angles and you just, just nothing's working. So the the most commonly referenced piece of pop culture that I could find in this episode was actually Dragon Ball itself. You know, we pay homage to the very first episode. Goku cracks a pteranodon over the head with his power pole. That happens in the first episode. Uh, we, we also pay homage to his use of the Kamehameha in Pilaf's Tower, where he, you know, tries to get them out of the, what do we call it? We called it the solar oven. Yeah. And he, he uses his it, – it, this just has more effective results in this episode where he uses it to blast an obstacle and it, it takes the obstacle down instead of just puncturing a hole in it. It also starts with just puncturing a hole in it though. It, the reason it comes down and it comes down so easily is because this is filler. You have to kind of reset everything back to status quo at the end. And we also obviously pay homage to the tournament. You know, We have Nam and, and Giren reappear and we talk about the tournament again. Uh, another interesting kind of little fact about this episode is there's a song called Fushigi Wonderland that plays in the Japanese version of this episode. This, when This actually caught me off guard when I watched this episode again because I'd completely forgotten. I was like, oh, right, this is where they introduced musical numbers for a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, this it plays only in the Japanese version. It's when Nam and Goku are like surveying the, the dried up desert or the dried up river. Uh, it's a song created by the Wonderland gang just for this show, but it was only ever used here in this one spot in this one episode. So no idea really why they created a whole song just to use for 12 seconds, but they did. Then we go to Pilaf and the Mystery Force. There's a potential maybe mild Oliver Twist kind of riff. You get the little boy who steals the dragon radar and Goku's clothes. You know, a child thief. It might be a reach, but like we said, in filler, it's hard to know what the inspirations behind things are. Pilaf's airship might be a nod to Star Wars, maybe even the Death Star itself. And it definitely has like a Star Wars kind of feel to it when you look at the the design of it. it has a very Star Warsy, like there's there's little bumps, like it's not just smooth, right? Mm-hmm. It's got like the nooks and crannies and the lights and the and the craters and the things like that on it. That's got kind of a Star Warsy feel. Combined with Colonel Silver at the end of this episode dropping a line, boring conversation anyway. After he shoots the pawn shop owner, it seems like at least Funimation was picking up some Star Wars vibes, right? I'm also wondering if they were doing a a reference to the whole Han shot first debate because the the pawn shop owner actually draws first, and then Silver draws and shoots him. Possibly. That tracks, right? I mean, this seems like there's a lot of Star Wars influence in this episode. That line just, it blew me away that that line was in here. You know, like, boring conversation. And I was like, holy cannoli. <laughs> um, <laughs> especially, I'm, watch, I'm watching this dubbed right now. And because Dragon Ball actually premiered on US TV later than Dragon Ball Z, Chris Sabat, does the voice of Colonel Silver. And it's not that far off of Vegeta as opposed to remember when we did the, um, the commentary on, on curse of the blood rubies. And we were like, Oh, his Yamcha is pretty good. Yeah. His, his Colonel Silver isn't that far from Vegeta. So hearing kind of Vegeta just say boring conversation anyway, (laughs) 
Uh, that threw me for a loop. Um, <clears throat> another song appears in this episode, also in the Japanese version only. It's Dragon Ball Densetsu. It was written by Onikado Izumi. The music was composed by Takeshi Ike with arrangement from Saichi Kayota. It's performed by Hiroki Takahashi. I don't know anything about any of those people. Uh, but this song, we may have another opportunity to research this and talk about it again because it appears... In the 1988 movie, Dragon Ball Mystical Adventure, which is the third Dragon Ball movie. So if we can end up finding some more about it between now and then, we can talk about these people in this song. But this is its first appearance. So at least with this song, they reused it. <clears throat> at one point in this episode, the shopkeeper is reading a newspaper and the phrase Mexico 86 can be seen on the back of it. This is a reference to the 1986 FIFA World Cup, which was hosted by Mexico and won by Argentina. Fun fact, when I, when I looked up this 86 FIFA World Cup, the event drew criticism from people for its mascot, which was a jalapeno pepper named Pique, who had a mustache and a sombrero. And so it came under fire for its use of ethnic stereotypes, obviously. That, that's not a very fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I couldn't find on a, a glance, again, I didn't dig deep into it, is who created this mascot, right? Was this created by FIFA and that's why it's racist? Or was this, like, created by, like, the Mexican consulate or, like, you know, I mean, <laughs> designates from, like, like ambassadors, not ambassadors, but, like, people chosen by the country of Mexico. And they're like, yes, obviously. <laughs> A, if you want, a, that's an interesting question. Yes. If you want an actual <laughs> fun fact, his name Pique is short for picante, and also a play on the idea of soccer or football having PKs, penalty kicks. So there you go. That's a that's an actual fun. Oh, see, fact. that's at least clever. I like that. <laughs> this episode also references the real world when it name drops Alexander the Great in the English version. In the Japanese version, the reference, it's when Pilaf is like trying on a crown and the shopkeeper is like, oh, that was worn by Alexander the Great. In the Japanese, he actually references a northern emperor of Japan from like 300 years ago named Emperor Aramasandaru. So you can see how Toriyama's style becomes lost a little bit when we're dealing with filler because he's pretty careful to maintain the idea of being in a fantasy world that's not our reality, but the anime team is obviously less careful when it comes to that, and they are referencing some real-world stuff. Kind of makes me think that fillers is, depending on how well it's done, there's a little bit of a flying-by-the-seat-of-your-pants element to it as well. Right. And, I mean, Toriyama obviously references real-world stuff too, right? He brings in that... Oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the, the his tour guide. Oh, I don't know why I can't remember it either. Yeah, but he, <laughs> but he brings that guy in, and he like he throws like Superman, and th you know he throws other pop yeah. culture into his works, and so he's can. But like, he's he's more careful about avoiding like specific moment in time references, like a FIFA World Cup. So moving on to episode thirty-one, wedding plans. Uh, the episode this episode is holy filler. And while most of the specific references made to anything are, again, just references back to Dragon Ball itself, this is an opportunity for a unique discussion about marriage traditions in the East. Traditionally, as in thousands of years ago, when Japanese culture began to establish itself in what is modern-day Kyoto, society was organized into an elaborate system of ranks, and most higher ranks would not get formally or permanently married. If a high-ranking official saw the same woman at night for three nights in a row – they were considered married, and the wife's parents threw a banquet feast for the couple. Uh, lower class people engaged in permanent marriage in order to ensure the legitimacy of their offspring, like inheriting land and so, uh, whatever meager possessions they had. The pitfalls of this sort of courtship are well documented in the fictional literature of the time, a notable example of which is the tale of the bamboo cutter, uh, which would go on to be most famously adapted as a film from Studio Ghibli called The Tale of Princess Kaguya, directed by Isao Takahata. Uh, it's also been told in other films adapted in parts into such things as like Sesame Street, Sailor Moon, Naruto, uh, and it's also been adopted into or adapted into a manga as well. Yeah, it's um, 
I'm familiar with it from the tale of Princess Kaguya, uh, from the 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 Ghibli movie. It's a a beautiful beautiful movie. Uh, the style of it is very like painterly. As um, yeah, I mean, well, Ghibli kind of has that reputation, right? Yeah, and and it's a it's a it's a really good movie. But um, I would highly recommend that movie to people. Um, I would also highly not recommend getting married to someone that you see for three nights in a row. <laughs> Solid <laughs> advice. Solid advice from Jelly. That's that's a new that's a new one. So as Japan established its own identity more firmly and tradition into the Edo period, pre-modern Japan, uh, marriage and family became extremely intertwined. Reverence for one's family and parents became the be-all of Japanese culture, and the decision of a man to remain single was considered one of the greatest dishonor. Excuse me, one of the greatest dishonors, tantamount to a capital crime, that a man could commit. Marriages were arranged, and the wife was considered to be entering the family, and feudalism was basically the rule. This led to some intermarriage, as families only loosely related might want to strengthen their alliances and their bonds. Uh, marriages were meant to be mutually beneficial. Romantic love was discouraged as dishonorable, though this was somewhat relaxed during the Meiji period just prior to World War II, and concubines became less prevalent. Marriages were still largely arranged until about 1912, roughly. Uh, and it wasn't until the post-war era that romantic marriage became widely adopted practice in Japan. In fact, their current constitution has an article that establishes marriage on the grounds of equality and choice. Quote, marriage shall be based only on the mutual consent of both sexes, and it shall be maintained through mutual cooperation with the equal rights of husband and wife as a base. Most traditional er, ceremonies in Japan are based in some form after Shinto weddings, and in truth, there's some of that on display whenever we see and hear about marriage and weddings in Dragon Ball. The wedding itself is typically a small ceremony that seems to be uh, uh, that seems to Westerners to be rather unromantic. The two individuals are purified by a Shinto priest, and they they agree to be bound to each other and declare themselves as a couple to the benevolent spirits, and reflect harmonious balance in their relationship. These are small ceremonies, and then it's the receptions and the feasts afterwards, which are per, which is what's showcased in this episode here, uh, that are open to the extended family. Right, and that's – I feel like we don't see a whole lot of weddings in Dragon Ball, but do we see Goku and Chi-Chi ultimately get married at, like, the end of Dragon Ball? I know we see them, like, go on some quest to get something to make a fire or something together, right? Like, I'm I, pulling a vague memory of, of having seen this, you know. I can't I think remember if that's I, episodes of the anime or if that was another uh, one of the movies. I was going to say, I also think it's filler material, so it's not... Okay. Um, but, like, yeah, the, the, the anytime we see a wedding kind of referenced in this... Sh- like, there's... Or in in Japan, a lot of times in general, like, the weddings themselves are very small. And then the part there's a party afterwards. It's just kind of different. Like, in the, in the West, it's more traditionally, like, everyone goes to both. Um, True. So in China, though... Speaking of Eastern culture, since China and Japan have a lot of mingling, and especially since Toriyama's borrowing a lot of Chinese culture to make Dragon Ball, marriage goes back further than it does in Japan. And that the etymology for the word itself, which is hunyin, or hunyin, I don't know how to pronounce words in Chinese, is derived from the radicals for knight and female. And so traditional ceremonies were held at night, which was seen as a time of great fortune. And because it's also, you know, sort of derived from this idea of female, they're like a little more bride-centric, although we'll see it's still a very patriarchal kind of thing. Marriage, though, in China is generally seen in a Confucian context. Uh, The key element being that the woman is joining her man's family and taking his surname, and then therefore... Marriage between people of the same surname is highly discouraged. It's document. There are documents in in China dated in the 400s that state, or I guess, given what they state, are restating that marriage between individuals of the same surname has been outlawed in China as far back as 1100 BC. So for 3,000 years, you have not been able to marry someone who has the same last name. Um, interestingly though, the oldest story about marriage in China involves a brother and sister 
who wanted to populate the world because the world had no people on it at that time and they wanted to populate it with their offspring. And they're granted clemency to do so by the higher-ranking gods. Uh, the bride, though, is shy about this arrangement and covers her face with a fan during the ceremony. And this is a tradition that, in some circles in China, persists to this day. The woman wearing a, a like covering her face with a fan during a, during her wedding. So it's kind of interesting that you know Chinese culture for thousands and thousands of years looks down on anything that could be considered incest in even a smallest way. Right, same surname. I mean. There are people with the same surname who are not related at all, you know? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, that's outlawed. But the original sort of Chinese wedding story is about a brother and sister. <laughs> but there's there's still a lot of similarities between Chinese and Japanese marriage. Like we said, the, the cultures kind of borrow a great deal from one another. And much of Chinese marriage is linked to the idea of piety before one's family and the benefit of the clan, just like in Japan. What the kind of difference is, is that matchmakers are more common in China. They were the original arrangers of marriages. So it wasn't arranged by like between the two fathers of a household. It was arranged by a matchmaker. This was established traditionally like in in. In the text, it was established to ensure the husband and the wife were a good match, but it evolved, obviously, in this patriarchal sort of society that they had, just, just into ensuring that the marriage would be mutually beneficial to the two families. So rather than actually having, like, the two dads come to an agreement, it was like having a, 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 a broker. broker between these yeah. two dads, yeah. Uh, the ceremonies, though, are a little bit more evolved and a little bit more elaborate. Involved. I don't. I, I sort of misspoke. I don't want anyone to think I said evolved. Uh, but they're a little more involved. But they do still hold to the idea that marriage itself is small and private, while there's a great feast held for extended family and friends afterwards. There's some pretty interesting stuff involved in this traditional Chinese ceremony, though. Like, the one that I found was that a groom, the groom has to overcome a series of obstacles in order to see his bride. I, I, I couldn't find out. And again, I didn't do a ton of research. Nobody's paying me to do this. So <laughs> I, I don't have the time to, to delve into it super deeply. It's not clear if these are like an obstacle course or just like like brain teasers kind of. Uh, but there's, there's, quote, a series of difficulties set in the groom's path, unquote, to meet the bride. And he has to cope with them in order to see her. I don't know what that means, but that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, I'd pay good money to watch some dude in a tux parkour all over the place to get into the church. That'd be kind of fun. You know, you know what it reminds me of? You've seen The Office, right? Yeah. You know, like when Angela and Dwight get married and like uh, Dwight's cousin Mose steals Angela and he has to like go to different bars to try and track her down. <laughs> yeah. That's what this sounds like to me. Like, like, <laughs> like the bride might be like hiding in one of three boxes and you had to pick the right one. That's, and if you yes, didn't pick correctly, you'd have to like walk back out of the room while they rearranged the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> they got her on like one of those little uh, roller seats like you used to have in, in space gym when you were a youngin <laughs> playing games. And they just have the a guy like moving boxes back and forth and the husband just has to keep track of it. <laughs> Yeah, like, uh, oh, what do they call that? Uh, the shell game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they also they also use firecrackers during their wedding ceremonies, and, like, the traditional color is red rather than white, so it's, like, just seems a little more fun. <laughs> and then there's a bit, bit less formality. Like, in Eastern culture in general, there's less more formality with the feasts than with what we think of as a typical Western wedding reception in terms of attire and presence at the wedding. It's it's not always, but sometimes considered a little bit uncouth in Western culture to appear only at the reception and not go to the wedding. In Asian culture, that's the expectation. Hmm. The, the wedding is for mom, dad, brother, sister, and like that's it. Grandparents probably. Um aunts uncles cousins friends show up to the reception show up to the feast afterwards um in chinese culture as was the case for 
traditional Japanese culture, the bride's family throws the party. So just some interesting kind of similarities. I mean, some of that is fairly similar to Western culture too, right? Like the, the bride is supposed to pay for like all the food at the reception in, in, in America most often. Right. And like the, right. the groom's family pays for the booze. Sounds about right. That's like a, that's a fair. I, I could get behind missing the wedding and just showing up for the reception though. I could probably get behind that. Depending on the wedding. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that, you know, though, it, it's becoming more and more common, I would say. Um, and, and this was already becoming a thing, like, in the... Did you hear that car go by? <laughs> that, that space car? <laughs> I thought we were out in the middle of nowhere. Probably some, there must be some people joyriding. Um, <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's becoming more common and it certainly was probably becoming common like when we were younger in the in you know the 80s and 90s to not have ceremonies wedding ceremonies held at a different venue than the reception it's becoming more and more and more common to have the two kind of more intertwined mm-hmm. um but that doesn't seem to be the case in asian culture for the most part right it sounds like the ceremony is like over here cuz there's only 15 people that are going to it and then the the reception is over here in America. They're, they're starting to kind of intermingle those, those two concepts, the wedding and the reception. Right. The flying fortress vanished again. Most of the references here just seem totally self referential. We're back in a peel off headquarters. There's traps, there's technology, you could confuse the brief moments here and there with like elements from the end of the peel off saga. There's times where like the walls come down and, and trap Goku in, I swear they're just recycling animation. Nothing. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. It probably saved money that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, one quick note on this episode, there is a shot of Goku and Chi Chi almost being hit by a plane while they're flying on Kinto Un or, or, flying nimbus this was removed from american tv airing of, of this episode and you might wonder like why this this shows from 1985 86 like why are they removing this dragon ball did not premiere in the united states until 2001 and this episode did not air in america until february of 2002 and if you want to Go, and, and it was like February 12th of 2002. So if you want to go back five months from there and maybe figure out why <laughs> this episode was removed or this, this uh, shot from this episode was removed from American TV airings. Yeah, I, th- I think we know why. If you've ever heard <laughs> of the World Trade Center. Yes, I have all the way out here in space. Yeah, it was a very famous, infamous incident in uh, world history. So... So yes, this this like one little quick shot was removed uh, out of deference to American viewers. That's fine. A lot of that happened. Uh, a lot of that happened with like. Yeah, I can think of like a handful of movies like uh, Lilo and Stitch. The ending was changed. Uh, Spider Man. I, I think that was the the the, the first Sam Raimi film. Yeah, uh, was also changed as well. I there's believe. a there's a trailer. You can watch the trailer. It's very uncomfortable. Uh, you can also look up the original ending for Lilo and Stitch on YouTube. Uh, I think they had it, it's it's not like fully finished, so it's like uh, like rough animation style. Mm-hmm. But they had like most of the ending already planned out, and then September 11th happened, and they had to scrap it all. But uh, if you are interested, it is out there. It's easy to find. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the last episode. Legend of the Dragon. Before getting into the the more interesting part of this episode, we have a, we have a couple of quick notes we just wanted to touch on. First, in the flashback, the evil man who wishes for power resembles the guy Goku touches in the back of the knee and knocks out of the ring very quickly in the Tenkaichi Budokai uh, opening round. Uh, the two members of the Red Ribbon Army who stumble upon the monkeys resemble or- the Orin monks who bullied Krillin, and one of them is even voiced. Uh, by the monk that Krillin fought and defeated in the tournament. 
Uh, in the Japanese version, Red's compliment of Silver dodging his cat removes the anecdote about another man losing his eye and just congratulates him, but then reminds him that if he gets cocky about his abilities, he'll be killed. Lastly, uh, so Roshi's story of the Dragon Balls versus the real canon of where the Dragon Balls came from. There's obviously a a, a goof up there, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, Toriyama didn't know the real background yet, as we've mentioned many, many times. He makes up stuff on the fly, and Piccolo, Kame, and Namek weren't even in his brain at this point in time. So there's, it's not really surprising that like the story we hear in this filler episode from someone other than Toriyama winds up conflicting with what we hear uh, later on in the series. And it's also very easy to hand wave away this discrepancy by saying this is a story that Roshi heard and it's a garbled legend. It's never stated as fact within the show. Just a, a little thing that kind of shows they weren't really sure where the story was going to go at this point in time. Right. But what's interesting, though, is that it bears similarities to what we mentioned when we did our, our Shenron episode, the idea that a dragon contains a magical wish-granting jewel within itself uh, that can alleviate suffering or grant desires or aid people in some way is, is pretty ingrained in, in Eastern culture. It's hard to say for certain whether this was an intentional way of incorporating and extrapolating from what the anime staff knew about Toriyama's inspiration and trying to actively be a little bit more cultural and remain true to what they thought of as the vision at the time, or whether it's just a coincidental, like any Japanese writer trying to come up with an explanation will come up with something similar because it's so deeply rooted in their cultural consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Dragons have this, like, yeah, it can it can remove pain. I can't remember exactly, um, but we talked about There was also, I think... Uh, we also mentioned that they were like controlled weather, like rain and stuff like that, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Go back and listen to the Shenron episode, episode number, <laughs> whatever number it was, <laughs> and and check it out if you haven't. But yeah, we talked about like how they were associated with magic jewels. And so, yeah, whether whether someone was like, oh, he uses a dragon and he's got this these, these jewels that grant witches... And so I know that this, like, like someone consciously making that decision of like, he's using a traditional Chinese dragon. I know that traditional Chinese dragons have wish granting jewels. He's using wish granting jewels. I'm going to say that like the dragon balls in the show are just a splinter, a spinoff of the folklore, the history, the, the mythology around dragons that like everyone knows. Or if it was just a person being like, I got to come up with something. How about just this? And it's just like so kind of ingrained in your culture at like such a young age, right? That you might just think of that without thinking deeply about it. Sure. Normally, I would say that that's, that's really good filler writing, except they forgot that Toriyama likes to subvert expectations. So, of course, when asked... You know, when he finally has to figure out where the Dragon Balls came from, he's got to go, nope, space aliens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's – I don't know. I don't get too hung up on discrepancies like that, not only because of the filler aspect of it, but also I do think this one has a very easy-to-hand-wave-away sort of – like you mentioned, the, 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 you can hand wave away it from a storytelling perspective of like, yeah, Roshi just heard that. He just heard wrong. Right. This brings us to filler. These five episodes, like we mentioned, are, are damn near 100% filler. The common conception around filler has always been that it's necessary. That if not for filler, the anime would outrun the manga and there'd be no material to cover. And so it's safer to tread water, kind of knowing where you're eventually going to go, than it is to run ahead and possibly contradict the author of the manga, right? So let's pause here while while we let the manga go for a while, even though we know that like that maybe there's 5 or 10 or 15 chapters still left to cover, but let's let's just kind of tread water here so that the manga can keep going and then we'll catch back up type of thing. But is this true? Is filler inevitable? Would you really catch up to the author? Because if he's putting out a chapter a week and you're putting out an episode per week, it seems like 
if you adapt approximately a chapter per episode, you could just maintain pace. And, and that's what it sounds like at a glance. And it seems to make some sense, especially when you think about anime, while different than the way TV shows run in America, and I think there's probably something to be said about this maybe in a future episode and, and going deeper into why this is, but like, it does not run all year. Now, again, like I just kind of touched on, it it doesn't run as briefly as syndicated TV does in America. Syndicated TV in America runs like 24 episodes per season. In Japan, you'll get like 40 to 48 episodes of anime in a 52-week year. I don't know why that is. I mean, the only thing I could think of is that where TV will give you like 24 episodes and call that a season in America. Japan is just like, yeah, 48 is twice as much, right? Like what well, one month off every year is, is enough, right? Yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know why, but that's, I mean, still, if you're doing now, if you're doing an episode per week and you're taking four weeks off, the manga should outpace you. Right. But they're different media. That's the first thing. So what takes a manga several panels or perhaps even pages to depict can potentially be conveyed in an instant in a visual medium. Now, conversely, you might say dialogue. Dialogue takes way longer to convey in an anime than a manga, and you need more creativity for conveying that information than just a block of text. But I found a website. Uh, it's called Kanzen Shu where one of their contributors went and they compared anime release dates with manga chapter publication dates and kind of found out that filler really is an inevitability. So from this, from Kanzen Shu, I found the, the manga, the show, the anime, sorry, the, the anime debuted when the manga was 63 chapters in 18 months later, which we've seen at this point has some filler in it, right? Because we're talking about episodes, some of it. sure, yeah. Eighteen months later, the show is thirty-one chapters behind the manga. Now, for the rest of the run of Dragon Ball, thanks to use of filler episodes here and there, runtime padding, etc., the anime remains about thirty chapters behind the manga. But when we get to Dragon Ball Z, and specifically during the Frieza arc, the anime creeps closer and closer and closer to the manga until. At episode 97, the anime is 10 chapters behind the manga. And this is the point at which Frieza says, five minutes until Namek will explode. Ah, uh, yes. The, the longest <laughs> five minutes in television history, yes. Indeed. And yes, if you're familiar with this part of the anime, and you've made that joke before about how it's the longest five minutes in, in TV history, the, the difference in pacing between manga and anime becomes readily apparent. The anime had been adapting about on average one and a third chapters of the anime for much of the Frieza arc. When Nam when Namek is given five minutes to explode, the rate slows down to a one to one ratio. It takes 10 episodes for Namek to explode, but it also took 10 manga chapters. We can gather from this that like a more quote-unquote correct pacing for an anime might be something like one and a half chapters per one episode, maybe two chapters per episode, because DBZ has never been known as the most briskly paced anime that there is. True. <laughs> even even when even when people are not accusing it of having a lot of filler, even when they're saying like, oh, it's, you know, this part is moving well, it's still not the most briskly paced. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think even, even your biggest fans of dragon ball would agree that the pace drags in some spots. Right. Particularly uh, when people are yelling at each other. Right. That's not even filler. That's stuff that's in the manga. They're just not doing anything to condense it. Cause at that point they are, they're, they're, in... they're padding, they're padding for their life. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and then we get the, the garlic junior arc, which puts us like, I think that wound up putting them 20 chapters behind. And so then 
they remained about 20 chapters behind 15, 20, sometimes 25 for like the rest of the series runtime. On top of that, though, while the anime more or less caught up to the manga at the end of the Frieza arc, if not for breaks in the TV airings, which again, we mentioned are like four weeks per year, the anime would have caught up even faster somewhere around episode 48 of Dragon Ball Z which is when Dodoria is mercilessly attacking the Namekians and then he briefly fights Gohan and I think Krillin does like solar flare and they run away. So we would have about 50 episodes sooner. <laughs> with with 20 weeks off, we would have caught up like around 40 or 50 episodes sooner. <laughs> and then on top of that, in the years from its premiere in 1986 until this part in 1981, where we get only 10 episodes or 10 chapters behind. I think you mean 91, not 81. What did I say? Oh. You said you the, said from 1986 until, and then you said 1981. I was like, that's, yeah, no, that's not how I time meant. works. <laughs> I, meant, I meant that. So on, on top of that, if Dragon Ball had produced no filler whatsoever... It would have caught up to the manga somewhere around when Chaozu tries to blow up Nappa. And probably even sooner than that, if not for breaks in the airing. So if if the anime were to run 52 weeks a year with no filler, you probably would have caught up like at the end of Dragon Ball. And if it ran the 48 weeks a year with no filler, it would have caught up at Nappa. And then if it ran, what is that, like with filler, but 52 weeks a year, it would caught up like around episode 50. And then, like we said, it catches up around episode 97, 100 in that range there. It, it becomes obvious then that filler is necessary, right? Either that or you have to wait so long that you might miss your window of opportunity to strike while something is popular. Makes sense. And so with that said, do you have any thoughts on filler? I I, I mean I have I have a few thoughts on th- on filler. <laughs> it's one of those things, it's not it's very clearly, as as we're showing kind of, not necessarily a bad thing. No, and and I think these five episodes uh, in my opinion are an example of when filler actually works. Because if you take somebody and have them watch the show and they don't have any frame of reference for for the manga or anything like that, these five episodes, while a little thin on plot in some spots, still kind of tie in to the to the overall narrative. Like we're we're revisiting characters that we saw previously, checking in on them, seeing what's going on with them. And then it's also kind of starting to build up the villains for the next arc, which when you read the manga, Red Ribbon Army kind of just shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so this kind of eases you into that next arc a little bit more smoothly than the manga does. So uh, in a way, I think uh, this has been really masterfully done because you're they're they're doing so many things at once here. They're 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 padding their run times. They're they're putting a little bit more distance between them and the, the current chapter of the manga. They're also kind of improving on the narrative a little bit, tying up some loose ends with characters that we haven't seen in a while, uh, starting new threads with, with the, the new villains and, and um, just like building up like how, how badass they are. Yeah. I do like, I do like the idea that in filler you can bring back a character or characters that maybe were popular or interesting or something that, the source material hasn't touched on in a while. Right. Like peel off. And then the other thing is, is when they try and leave themselves as much room as they can between where they're at and where the manga's at, I think it also helps facilitate doing filler a little bit better because you already know where the story's going to go. So you can kind of say, okay, well, if we know where it's going to go, what are some things we can work on? What are some things we can pad to kind of smooth it out a little bit for us? Right. And I think you see that a lot in that that episode 33, which, yes, is a very sort of lackadaisically paced episode for sure. But you you build up 
and, and it's it's kind of funny because this this would almost I think these episodes do like you said a really good job these specific episodes even though we mentioned they lose sight of some of Toriyama's style the one thing they do a pretty good job of maintaining is they are maintaining and, and even playing more into the subversion of expectations right mm-hmm. we're we're building up silver silver dismantles Pilaf in an instant and not that Pilaf himself was ever that big an obstacle for Goku his technology presented some problems right Goku couldn't get out of that solar oven as we mentioned and and then True. also we do show in this that Goku kind of rams through some of this stuff now now that he's had training from Roshi in in a heartbeat but we also then show that Silver manages to destroy his whole flying fortress right so Yep. Here's this this menace that's bigger than the previous menace. And then we also show him easily defeat like six guys at once, which, you know. At this point, I don't think we've even seen Goku do. Right. And then when they eventually fight, which I honestly think is in like the next episode. It's like a two second, like Goku kicks him and then like walks away. <laughs> <laughs> He's the jobber. <laughs> that's a very, but that's a very like Toriyama esque kind of thing to do, right? You've you've built up this menace, you've built up this potentially epic clash. Sure. And then and I mean, you... he's he's kind of done it already with uh, Oolong, in in my opinion. Like when you're first introduced to this character, you don't even see his real form. He just has all these monstrous different shapes that he takes on. You're thinking, oh wow, how's how's Goku going to handle this? And then it's oh, it's not even a challenge at all. <laughs> right. Right. So, so yeah, it, filler's not necessarily bad. And I, I personally have no issues, no real issues with the, the Garlic Jr. saga, honestly. Um, I, I don't either. It was an interesting, I mean, I think the Garlic Jr. saga is more interesting for that discussion of when characters wish for immortality, like, what are they actually getting? Right, right. Where filler gets. I think more problematic is in that Frieza arc situation where you've not really been using it judiciously. You've not you're, been you're using kind of just it, padding up nothing moments. You've not been using it intelligently. And then all of a sudden you catch yourself in a situation where you have to just suddenly start using it. And then yes, you turn what should be. And listen, I love, I love the, the battle between Frieza and Goku, but that should be, and it it 100% should be more than five minutes, right? there. And there would probably still be people who'd be like, oh, five minutes, four episodes later, you know? But it wouldn't be ten episodes for one thing. Right, um, because you're, well, the other thing is, is they're trying to also show perspectives on the story from a lot of different characters' viewpoints. Right. And so you can kind of hand wave that away as, well, this is all happening concurrently. It's just right. we're kind of like hopping back and forth in time to get everyone's, you know, thoughts on what's happening. Yeah. But, but what should be four, maybe five episodes becomes 10 because you haven't been right. Using filler judiciously up to that point. Now, right at the very start of all the Namek stuff, there's a, a filler section that I don't like at all. Um, <laughs> Are we talking about the, the fake Namek? Yeah. Episode. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. So that's an example to me of, of filler that, that, isn't done well because that's it, it does there's no stakes because everything's the same as it was at the end of the episode it's not like it's not like the the driver's test or the baseball episode because it's not while it is goofy it's not like the, the whole point of the episodes isn't humor itself so that also kind of detracts from it for me and then on top of that we never we i don't think we ever see these characters again do we no, and we never saw him in the first place. True. Like it's it's not like like we mentioned the 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 peel off filler in this. This is a character we've seen before, and so we're bringing him back, you know, to check in with him again, albeit in filler. But we're we're bringing this character back. We're kind of seeing him again and seeing where he's at. We never saw like we have no reason to care about those fake Namek guys because we never saw them before, and then yeah, we never see them again. 
No, there's that. That's there's there's good filler and there's bad filler, and you know, I yeah. I think and, and I think that viewpoint becomes a lot easier to to have once you realize that like filler is just it's a part of the medium. There's not really much we can do to not have it. Right. the The only option is to the only make it as good as you can. The only other option is to wait until the manga has finished its run, but like we mentioned, that's that's not super realistically an option because it's, it's it's hitting the the iron when it's ice cold at that exactly, point. Exactly. Exactly. If if you wait that long and you make a manga or an anime of some manga that just finished, who who cares? <laughs> like everyone already knows the story and they know where everything is gone. You wonder though, you know, this article that I was that I was reading on on Kanzenshu, it didn't one thing that would have been interesting would have been how would it or would it have caught up if it aired the way it would air in the United States? Is that a better model for? Well, I mean, just rough math in my head from there. So if you're looking at 20, it's typically around 24 episodes for, for a season in uh, in America, right? Yeah, and something like 44 or 48 or something. Okay. I'm not so super familiar. I wish I... I, wish I had had more time and ability to look up that piece of it. But again, so yeah, again, the manga production, this is a, closer. this is a podcast we are doing and we're not getting paid any extra <laughs> by Lord Frieza to be doing. So true. This is, this is merely to occupy our time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my thought is that if, if it was, if it's run like a show in America where there's only 24 for a season and that's typically like every year you'd get renewed or whatever, you're already kind of setting yourself up where you could do like two chapters an episode and you would just kind of maintain pace. I'm thinking if, if it was, you know, a 24 episode season, I think it would be a lot easier to kind of just stick straight to the source material as opposed to um, having, having to use filter or filler. Sorry. But you know, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of production pitfalls and stuff that, we're not taking into account because we don't work in that industry. So yeah. Will we ever know? I'm sure it's some, I'm sure someone out there hopefully is listening and will be like, Oh, you guys are idiots. So though, that's, that's these filler episodes. Um, I think for next time, if you're wanting to follow along with us, we'll probably do, Usually we do about three or four episodes per and, you know, we just kind of, I'll be honest, it's, it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to say, oh, for next time, watch these because we kind of watch some episodes and we say, oh, there's a really good discussion piece in this one or these ones are kind of boring or, you know, I mean, it's just kind of how yes. it is. <laughs> we've, we've constrained ourselves to like a time limit and then there's like, uh, you know, hours of prep work before this that we have to get done and, and then, you know, figuring out our subjects and everything. So it's, it's kind of in the air until we actually sit down and and record an episode. It could be one episode. We could just watch one episode and go, Oh, there's so much that happens in that one episode. It's possible, but But definitely not those 10 episodes of the Frieza fight though. Yes. If you're wanting to follow along with us though, for next time, Watch like three or four episodes, and then when we get on and say, oh, we're just covering episode 34, then, well, at least you'll have watched that one. And if we're like, oh, we're covering 34 through 38, you'll only have to, like, pause and go watch one other episode. There you go. And an episode of this show takes, it doesn't even take 20 minutes to watch if you skip the opening and the ending. True. Uh, fun pro tip for those of you that watch on Hulu, if you start your timer at the 2 minute and 11 second arc, you will be right at the fade in for the start of an episode. We are not officially endorsed by Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> that Red Ribbon Army. I hope we never have to deal with them. Why? Because killing an entire army of people isn't my idea of a cup of tea and they don't seem like negotiators hey that Ventuvi power level just blipped across my scouter again well maybe we'll get to get a glimpse of it again before we leave yeah we're here by the way what we're just here you didn't signal in our final approach or communicate with the tower or anything like that 
Oh, I, uh, I did. During your last rant about the episodes. We, we've been landed for a few minutes already. We've been on friendly land for a few minutes, and you didn't say anything? We were having such a good discussion. You interrupt me constantly. Every time I'm about to tell you how it is you think I keep surviving certain Durham, you pipe in with... I think we'll take our leave of you here, listeners. God damn it. Woo, woo, woo. Wait, what's that? Proximity alert. <laughs> Seems that Ventuvi will be passing by here. Will we see the Ventuvi one more time? Will it appear as majestic nearing a planet as it does in deep space? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. Final Form is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVGKit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.